Support for WRFA is brought to you in part by the United Ways of Chautauqua County. United Way is a nonprofit organization that mobilizes the community to help every person and family improve their lives. Donations to the United Way stay 100% locally in our community and get invested in more than 40 community-based programs. These programs help students achieve academic success, families to be self-sufficient and financially stable, and vulnerable households to get their basic and emergency needs met. The United Ways of Chautauqua County, proud supporters of community radio in Jamestown, New York. To learn more, visit uascc.org or call 716-483-1561. And again, you're listening to Community Matters. Assemblyman Andy Goodell didn't hold back on his criticism of the state budget process and the final result. We spoke with him about his concerns. After a month late, the state legislature passed a budget on May 2nd. You and I, we've run into each other a few times in the last month or so, chatted a little bit about the budget process, and now it's it's finally done. So what is your reaction to what happened during the budget process and what was passed? Well, first, um, let me mention why I think the budget was a month late. And the problem arose because Governor Hochul underperformed in her last election. And, and in fact, many of the Democrats blame her for their loss of seats in the Assembly and in the Senate because she did so poorly. And as a result, when the governor goes in front of the legislature, which is two-thirds of her own party, and she says, this is the direction we want to go in, Uh, She's not warmly welcomed. And so you have, in effect, a very weak governor, and you you have a strong legislature that's not on the same page. Now, Governor Hochul is trying to move more toward the center because she recognized that she only carried the major cities upstate. She did not carry Chautauqua County or any county other than Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, Binghamton, and Albany. The rest of the upstate, she lost. So she wants to move a little bit more toward the center. Meanwhile, of course, the Democrat legislators, well, they all come from Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, Albany, Binghamton, and New York City. So they want to go in the opposite direction. And then within the Democrat Party itself, you have a very deep divide between the socialists and they actually call each other comrade and things like that. You have the socialists that are far left and the more moderate Democrats. And the socialists are so far left that the Democrats are losing moderate Democrat seats on Long Island and New York City. The Republicans picked up in the assembly five seats, including three in New York City, which is almost unheard of. And so within the Democrat caucus itself, you have tremendous tension. And of course, the socialists want to tax the rich and want to give away all your money and want government to run everything because uh, they apparently aren't aware that the communist countries have not done as well as the free market company countries, and so they want to repeat the failed experiments of the past with socialism and, and that line. And you have the moderate Democrats who are uh, worried about a primary from the far left. And so they're trying to appease the far left without jumping off a cliff. And in the last um, two election cycles, there have been 
well over a dozen well-respected, more senior, moderately liberal Democrat members who have lost in primaries to these uh, radical socialists. And so it's a that tension within the Democrat caucus and between the Democrat caucus and the governor made it very, very difficult for them to reach agreement. When they finally reached agreement, they basically eliminated the governor's efforts to modify bail. They gave her a little face-saving, meaningless change uh, on bail reform, but did not increase the number of crimes that are eligible for bail at all. Um, they totally uh, eliminated her housing proposals, completely eliminated their housing proposals, and generally ran roughshod over her efforts to rein in spending. So right now, the budget, after a month of that internal conflict, um, raises spending in New York State by $8.6 billion to uh, $229 billion. And to put that in perspective, Florida, with 2 million more residents, has a state budget of about $130 billion. In other words, Florida's budget, with 2 million more residents, is just a little bit more than half as large as New York State's. And because New York State has such a huge budget, they, of course, have to have huge taxes. And um, this year, uh, the business tax was scheduled to go down. Instead, they continued it 28.7% higher than it was supposed to be. They did avoid adding even more income taxes, but even our current income tax rate in New York City is the highest in the nation. And the IRS tracks where people live, obviously, when you file your tax return, you tell them not only how much you made, but where you live. New York lost $24 billion in gross uh, adjusted income as reported the IRS over the last years. And, um, and so we are shedding jobs and people and adjusted gross income uh, because we are not competitive. Now, the amazing thing about living in the United States with 50 separate states is you have 50 experiments on how things are being done. And so at any given time, you can look around and you can say, wow, which states are doing great? and which states are not. And if you're thoughtful and you're focused on the long term, you can learn from the mistakes and you can learn from the successes of other states. And so New York is losing more population as a percentage than any other state in the nation. We're losing more adjusted gross income than any other state in the nation. And in the meantime, you have Florida and Texas and other states that are just exploding in terms of job opportunities and uh, increased uh, population and increased wealth. And so if you're focused on the long term, you'd say, what are they doing that's different than us? And you don't have to look very far to realize that Florida has no income tax at all, and they're exploding. Um, Texas has much lower taxes. California 
has taxes that are almost as high as ours. And they're shedding population. They're number two in terms of percentage of losing. And so what's New York do? Rather than change its long-term approach to embrace the success of other states, New York doubled down on the very policies that are causing us to be last in the nation. And it's so frustrating when I'm dealing with my Democrat colleagues and I say, look at the data from our own tax department on how many people are leaving New York State, how many millionaires are leaving and taking all their wealth with them, how many working class between the ages of 30 and 40 are leaving for new job opportunities. And what are we doing to build more economic opportunities for us here in Chautauqua County? Well, right now our minimum wage is about double of Pennsylvania and Ohio. And so the Democrat majority is doubling down on that failed policy and raising the minimum wage even higher and driving more New York companies out of New York. Um, we look at our tax rate, substantially higher than our neighboring states. What's New York doing? Well, the temporary 28.7% business tax is made permanent. I mean, just the opposite of what we should be doing. We have a housing crisis in New York State. Why? Because New York has made it extraordinarily difficult for landlords to be successful. And they are driving investment out of the housing market. So what's New York State legislature do? Double down on those failed policies. So it's very, very frustrating. Now, I didn't want to be, uh, you know, the Debbie Downer. Sorry, Debbie. I didn't want to be uh, <laughs> completely negative. I mean, there's a lot of positive things in a $229 billion budget, as long as you're the recipient of the money and not the payor. Um, and, um, and so we've seen library aid uh, stay uh, where it was, and the cut from the governor was reversed. We saw 211 funding, which is a great program. That is up there. We saw a small increase in highway aid. Um, we saw a large increase in school aid which I hope the schools will use to uh, enable them to give some of us a tax break. Hopefully, we'll see. Uh, so there's a lot of positive initiatives as well. But overall, New York is not yet, my Democrat colleagues are not focused on the long-term changes that we need to do to regain our status as the Empire State. You mentioned, uh, you know, a lot of things that I would say are related to economic development. And, uh, you know, when, as we're talking, I just uh, found out the news this morning that that even one of our local companies, SKF, is receiving $2 million in Empire State Development funds, which is great news. Yeah. Uh, but what, what is in this budget that helps economic development? So um, there's about 285000 that we've set aside for thousand, two hundred and eighty five million, thank you, uh, that we've set aside for economic development. And the grant at SKF would be part of that type of funding program. And that funding program uh, can be very, very helpful in meeting the investment costs that a New York manufacturer needs to do in order to stay competitive and stay in New York. Um, recognizing that Doing construction in New York costs more than doing construction anywhere else. Um, those economic development grants can make the difference. So that's very positive. 
what was frustrating in this budget is that while there's 285 million allocated for all of upstate, by that I mean everything outside of New York City, including Long Island, <laughs> this budget included a $700 million tax credit for the film industry and another $300 million in tax credits for the New York City-based entertainment industry, the theater. That's a billion dollars, almost four times more than all the rest of the state combined for the theater and the film industry. And as a matter of public policy, you know, my colleagues and I are saying, why are we giving $700 million and tax credit to these filthy rich uh, Hollywood producers and movie stars to make a movie in New York. Now the answer was, well they're just temporary jobs. They come in and they make one movie. If we didn't pay them to come and make the second movie, they wouldn't make it here. That's the theory, right? And I'm thinking, hey, why don't we give a, a billion dollar tax cut to industries that have permanent jobs? Why give a billion dollars a year to temporary jobs and instead of giving what I think we should do, a billion dollars in tax cuts for permanent jobs? Uh, now, what you're seeing, unfortunately, is the New York State Democrat Party is, is, in a, is morphing into a different party than it used to be. Um, you know, 40 years ago, in my opinion, the Democrat Party focused on helping blue-collar working families, middle-class, hard-working families, unionized, right? That was their focus. What you're finding now is that the Democratic Party has abandoned the blue-collar working families and is now focusing on the wealthy elite, and the very poor. And then you see that in their energy policy where they're pushing all electric vehicles that an average work, blue collar worker can't ever afford because they're astronomically expensive. They're focusing on all electric construction, which an average middle class blue collar worker can't afford that type of construction or that type of conversion. They are absolutely pursuing uh, uh, an extraordinarily elitist policy where they give a billion dollars for the entertainment industry and all the fat, cat, filthy, rich Hollywood luminaries and almost nothing to help blue-collar, middle-class workers. This budget included absolutely no money to pay down the $8 billion that's owed by all the small businesses upstate, all the manufacturing companies upstate for unemployment insurance that was advanced by the federal government during COVID. Nothing to help all the blue-collar workers that work for those companies to pay down that unemployment debt. Yet, at the same time, a billion dollars for the entertainment industry. And then on the flip side, of course, uh, the Democrat Party is pushing hard to provide as much money as they can to people who don't work. Money that's paid into the state treasury by hardworking, blue-collar, middle-class workers are now going to pay more money for people 
who don't work. And so um, we have legislation, for example, that dramatically increases the amount of cash you can keep and still not work and still collect welfare at the expense of your neighbors. And so it's unfortunate to see that. I think the Democrat Party was much stronger when they focused on helping the middle class rather than becoming, you know, environmental elitists and focusing on those who, um, who just need cash. So um, that's a real frustration in that perspective. When it comes, I um, think about economic development. We also think about sometimes capital improvements and things like that. And uh, last year, there was an increase in the amount of chips money that municipalities received, including Jamestown, I think getting the most they had ever gotten. And uh, and we're kind of waiting to hear, how did the chips fall, quite literally, uh, when it comes to funding for transportation projects? Yeah, so uh, I was pleased this budget did include an increase in chips, uh, about $60 million increase. So the total statewide chip allocation is now $598 million. And that's about a 10% increase in the amount of chips, which is good. Of course, the 10% doesn't keep up with the huge cost increase that we've seen in asphaltic oil and raw materials, but it helps. And I'm very pleased with that. Uh, I was also at the same time very frustrated that you see a New York City-centric budget, um, and the New York-centric budget provides $4.2 billion, that's with a B, $4.2 billion for the MTA, which hasn't raised its rates on a single ride since 2017, five years ago, and they're not raising the rates now. And they give them $4.2 billion so they can establish some free bus lines, free meaning you pay for it rather than the people who are actually using it, and only uh, less than $600 million for all the rest of upstate, including Long Island. You know, it's just totally disproportionate. Um, so, you know, we, we argue on the floor about equity, and we're saying, you should treat upstate, which has half the state's population, on the same equitable basis as you should in New York City. And if you are telling me that we should subsidize the MTA so that uh, residents in New York City don't have to pay a higher subway fee, okay, I get that. How come we're not giving a tax break on the gas that all of upstate needs, right? We had a gas tax break that expired December 31st. So the state allowed gases prices in upstate to go up by 16 cents. Yet they put in billions to make sure that the MTA doesn't have to raise their rates at all for five years. By the way, back in 2017, your gas was like 250 a gallon. It's now like 370. <laughs> Wouldn't that be sweet if we didn't have to pay anything higher than 250 a gallon, uh, the same rates that we paid in 2017? So, uh, you know, frustration in that, that um, unfairness between downstate and upstate. And you see it also, by the way, the state budget included a billion dollars for New York City to help uh, migrants who are coming into the city. A billion dollars. We have the same situation here in Jamestown. As a percentage of population, it's, it's roughly, you know, comparable. 
obviously fewer people, zero, zero to help migrants anywhere else outside of New York City. Zero for Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, zero for Long Island, a billion just for New York City. You know, that's just not fair. It's not appropriate, it's not fair, it's not good public policy. With the, uh, the migrant uh, funding, as, as we're speaking, literally the Title 42 immigration policy has just expired in the United States, and the governor put out um, state of emergency and some executive orders. Do you think there's anything in that that will help upstate communities like Jamestown with the anticipated influx of uh, asylum seekers and migrants? Well, uh, what would be most effective is if the federal government actually secured our borders and required people who are seeking entry to comply with our immigration laws. And our immigration laws uh, have some very important and valuable protections for all of us. Um, for example, anyone seeking access to the United States as an immigrant has to go through a background check. So we're not letting in MS-13 gang members, for example, or convicted drug dealers or, or others. That's very important for you and I and all of our neighbors, right? And most of us have recent relatives, when I say recently, within the last two or three generations, who immigrated here to Jamestown. My uh, maternal grandparents immigrated from Sweden. So I understand and I support lawful immigration. I think it's a huge benefit to the nation. But you need to follow the rules. You need to have that background check. You need to have a basic health check to make sure you're not coming in with communicable diseases or something that will be dangerous. You need to have an initial evaluation of whether or not you're eligible. Um, so if you're seeking asylum, for example, you have to have a bona fide fear of political persecution. If you don't, you're not eligible for asylum. You're eligible to apply for other programs, but not asylum. In Jamestown, the people who came here from Columbia are seeking asylum. They can't work here legally until their claim is adjudicated. They're in limbo. We as a community are struggling to help them because we're a compassionate community. We're getting no state support, and we're in limbo. It's much better for the federal government to have control over the borders, to make that preliminary evaluation, and only let people into the United States that meet you know, a prima facie or, or uh, you know, reasonable expectation of success, and be upfront with everyone else. Um, so that's, that's my great frustration there. I don't want to sound like I'm frustrated for everything uh, because I recognize the tremendous positive value that we have from immigration, but I think it's important that we do so legally and orderly in a way that we can absorb the people, allow them to work, allow them to be productive members of our society, but have the comfort and the security of knowing that they are not hardened criminals, fleeing criminal prosecution from their own country, or drug dealers, or you know, very sick with communicable diseases. When it comes to uh, the budget 
And one of the things that we kind of, I think, we, we were sort of joking about it, but not joking for sure, was about how riddled the budget process was with policy discussion. And uh, and one thing that um, Senator Borrello mentioned to me is he's going to bring forward legislation to make it illegal to have policy in the budget. And I said, well, isn't that part of the you know state constitution already? And he says, well, yes, but we, I can't count how many times we break the state constitution on a daily basis in Albany. So... When it comes to policy, one thing that was taken out of the process was this housing compact that was proposed by Governor Hochul. And it sounds like it's going to get considered, maybe get some more discussion in the state legislature. And I wondered if there was any parts of it, whether proposals by other Democrats or Republicans or maybe concessions by the governor herself that you look at and say, I would support this in a housing plan for New York State. Yeah. Um Yesterday was an amazing day on the floor of the assembly because for only the third time in my entire career, the state assembly refused to pass a Democrat bill. It's only the third time in my entire career that's happened. And the bill related to housing. And um, what the bill did is it made it, would have made it illegal for a landlord to report to a credit agency if a tenant wasn't paying their uh, rent on time, which would make it impossible for a landlord looking at a credit report to know whether the tenant was a good paying tenant or not. And as I point out, every time the state makes it more expensive for a landlord to rent to a tenant, every time the state does that, the rent to tenants goes up because the landlords have no choice but to pass that on. When we make it more difficult for a landlord to, to know who pays on time and who doesn't, they have no choice but to raise rent on everyone. It's also horrifically unfair to the tenants who pay on time because under the current system, a good paying tenant can take their credit score to the landlord and say, let me have the apartment not anyone else, because I pay on time and here's the proof. That would make it illegal. This bill would also encourage tenants to be more late on landlord uh, rental than their other bills, because their other bills, if they were late, would be reported, but if they were late to their landlord, it would not be reported under this bill. So this bill did everything wrong in terms of what we want as a public policy. As a public policy, we want to encourage tenants to pay on time. As a matter of public policy, we want to keep the rent as low as possible. As a matter of public policy, we want to encourage people to invest in the real estate market so that we have more supply, more affordable housing, and lower rents. And for the last three, four years, the Democrat majority has been on this vendetta against landlords. And so they make it extraordinarily difficult and expensive for people to invest in the housing market and make a reasonable return. And as a result, we have a housing crisis, especially in the New York City area, that's created in large part by misguided Democrat legislative initiatives. Simple example. They passed a bill that applies statewide that limits the security deposit to one month, but took the eviction process out to three months. 
which means if you're a landlord and you have a tenant that's not paying, you're guaranteed to lose at least three months of rent. Well, how do landlords respond? There's only If you're going to stay in business, there's only one way for you to respond. Number one, well, I mean, there's a number of ways you can respond, none of which are good for tenants. Number one, you can raise the base rent so that knowing that you'll lose money for those who don't pay on time, you have to make it up for it. Somewhere, you make it up by raising the base rent. That's bad for tenants. The second thing you do, you do a much tighter security review of the tenants coming in. And so if you're a tenant that doesn't have a good employment history or doesn't have a good crack sore, you find it harder and harder to get a, an apartment because a landlord can't take the chance with you. That hurts low and moderate income tenants. The third thing that happens is landlords simply sell the house and get out of the business. And you saw a drop in the actual number of apartments that are available in New York City for the first time in decades as a result of this policy. And that, of course, results in higher rent because when supply is restricted and demand stays high, we all know what happens with the law of supply and demand, and that hurts tenants. And so you can't attack landlords as a group and drive out private sector investment without hurting tenants. And it's taken the Democrat legislature four years to figure that out, but they finally figured it out, and yesterday for the first time refused to approve another bill that would hurt landlords and drive up costs to tenants. So I was, I'm encouraged that you know, some of my Democrat colleagues are starting to recognize the economic realities that uh, you can't drive up the cost of landlords without driving up the cost of tenants. When it comes to the housing plans, I don't know if anything's going to happen in this legislative session or not, but you know, Governor Hochul had proposed the building of 800,000 new units. Uh, she had some restrictions and or you know oversight that uh, she thought the state could go in and you know tell zoning boards what to do, and that the legislature said, well, no, I don't think so. Do you see any pathway, you know, in terms of what would you want to see with legislation to encourage uh, more housing, even affordable housing? So uh, first, with regard to Governor Hochul's proposal, uh, you're absolutely correct. Her original proposal would allow the state to override local zoning. And that was uh, met with horrific backlash, especially amongst all the suburban areas outside New York City because the suburban areas don't want a massive housing product, project in the middle of their single-family communities. Uh, those suburban communities pay a premium in order to live in quaint, attractive, single-family communities. And they don't want a massive housing project you know, put in the middle of their community. So you got tremendous backlash, and I don't think that will ever go forward. As one of my moderate Democrat colleagues said, that legislation presented an existential threat to Democrats ever being reelected in suburban communities. So I don't think that will ever go forward. In terms of what needs to be done to increase housing, we need, in my opinion, to revisit some of the housing laws that were put together in 2019 and since then to restore balance between landlords and tenants. So we want to be fair to the tenants, absolutely, but we also want to make it 
so that landlords can invest in more affordable housing without risking their investment or losing their shirt. And so we need a much more balanced approach. Simple example. In 2019, they said you couldn't charge more than one month's security deposit even if the tenant had a pet. Well, at first blush, you say, oh, this is great for pet owners. No, it was horrible for pet owners because everyone who's in the housing market knows that if you have uh, a couple of dogs, they're going to do more damage or wear and tear on the apartment. Even good dogs are going to cause a lot more wear and tear. And so what happened? Landlords stopped running the tenants with dogs. Or they dramatically increased the base rent to cover it. So we need to step back and re-examine how did that legislation play out in reality, and then we need to roll things back, provide more flexibility to landlords, look how we can make it easier for people to invest in the housing market and make a reasonable return, especially as it relates to lower income and moderate income housing. When it comes to your own legislative agenda, we, you know, the budget's passed, you have a couple more weeks left in Albany. Uh, do you have anything in particular that you're working on and hope to get done? Well, there's a couple bills that I'm pretty confident we'll go through. Um, perhaps one of the most important ones is uh, the reauthorization of the bed tax. Uh, the bed tax is a 5% tax on hotels, motels, and cottages in Chautauqua County. And right from the beginning, that entire 5% was designed to be collected by the tourism industry and used exclusively for the tourism industry. So three of that five cents is for marketing and special events and supporting like our library or our uh, museums, the comedy center, special events, things like that. Um, the other 2% was focused on our lakes because we know the lakes are a great tourism attraction. Well, over time, the amount that went into the lakes gradually became smaller and smaller until this year, only about 18% of the bed tax of that two cents. 18% is actually in lake maintenance on Chautauqua Lake. So uh, Senator Brill and I amended the law to require that at least half of the 3% be used for marketing and at least half of the 2% be used for in-lake management. The other half can be used for uh, overhead and um, watershed management and other valuable programs. But we want to make sure that at least half was available for in-lake management on shoreline cleanup, weed control, and harmful algae control. So um, we think that change will be very beneficial moving forward. Um, so we have that. That's going to go through. Uh, we renew the county's bed tax authorization, which... Uh, when we increase the bed, uh, I'm sorry, the sales tax authorization. So when we increase the sales tax from seven and a half to eight percent, the county made a commitment to use the extra money to keep property taxes down, and that was a very positive move for keeping property taxes down. So that's going forward. We have other legislation that I that I've drafted to address the fiscal cliff that welfare recipients are facing, and what happens is as you approach a income threshold, you run that risk where you earn a few more dollars and you lose a much higher benefit. And so uh, I've drafted the legislation to put together a fiscal cliff task force with representatives from our state welfare agency, tax department, health department, and others 
to focus on how we can eliminate those fiscal cliffs and phase down the welfare benefits as a person's income is going up. And so far, I've gotten preliminary uh, verbal support from the chairs of both the Senate Social Services Committee and the Assembly Social Services Committee. And so I'm hopeful that legislation will move forward and that would have huge positive ramifications for those who are in welfare, who wanna leave welfare, wanna be able to afford to work and be able to get out of welfare. So I hope that legislation goes through. Uh, we've also introduced a legislation, Senator Brella and I, that would limit women's sports to females. Now, personally, I don't care whether you're a woman and you want to be a man, or you're a man and you want to be a woman, uh, whether you're you know gay, transvestite, transgender, uh, or any of those other you know queer questioningses or a whole bunch of other words I don't know really quite what they mean. How, what your personal identity is 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 up to you, in my opinion. But if you're a female, you ought to be able to compete fairly against other females. And males have biological differences that are inherent, whether it's lung capacity, the type of muscle that men have is different than the type of muscles that women have. And it's just fundamentally unfair to women to have to compete against men in an all-woman sport just because a man wants to be treated like a woman. How he wants to be treated outside of sports is his business, but when it comes to sports, I think women should have the right to compete fairly against other women. Uh, so we have that legislation, and um, I'm hopeful that that'll be considered as well. Right. I have about 30 bills total, but I don't think we have enough time to reveal them yeah, all. Yeah, unfortunately, I am looking at the time, and I am already trying to calculate. <laughs> I, I, you know, for people who are listening to this online, maybe later, uh, the, we we will have the full interview available on the WRFA SoundCloud. Uh, so, um, but I am curious. I, I keep us up to date for sure because I'm very interested in hearing how different bills are, are going to go through. Um, but, but Assemblyman Cadell, we are, we are running out of time here, and I appreciate you coming in. To, you know give us an update and also give some historic background to some of the things that have been going on in Albany. So I thank you so much for coming in today. Absolutely. Thank you.